Thank you. Jean Carlos, what an introduction. I don't know if he expected me to dance onto the stage like a boxer or something. But anyway, I'm here. And uh, come on, let's give our worship team a hand. Let's thank them. Thank you, Megan. And uh, I know that Jean Carlos has already welcomed her family, but good to have them here. And I want to make a special welcome. Where are you, Jess uh, and Ian Abbott? Because Jess just had a baby boy. Oh, they're out there. Oh, they're out the side. But anyway, I don't know. There you are, Jess, up the back. And had a baby boy, Stetson Thomas Abbott. There you go. What a name, Stetson Thomas Abbott. And he's the fourth in their family. Don't know how many more are coming. What is there, five and a quiver? So three boys and a girl. So that little girl, Everly, is going to be well looked after by her brothers. And congratulations, big congrats. Uh, love the Abbott family. We've known Jess for many, many years, over, I've got to be 20 years, close to 20 years. Uh, she was my wife Di's intern in Australia and uh, was living here, of course, grew up in California. And uh, so we're very, very happy for them. Um, if you haven't noticed, we have a lot of books out in the foyer. And one of the things that we're doing as a part of our move is that we're kind of distributing uh, what we have. We don't want to be storing things uh, that we don't need. How many have you had things in a storage unit that have been there for years and years and years and you've never seen them and you've paid more than their value at time of buying to store them? Most people here. Um, I have my own story, but time won't permit me to tell it. But things that we left in our attic in Australia, brought here, moved around here in a storage unit, out of a storage unit, and now finally culling it. But one of the things we want to do is we want to give people an opportunity to get some good books. And uh, just at a basically a donation. I mean, if you want to take them and don't want to pay, that's fine. Uh, but... We have some great books, $5 each. And this is anyone, uh, who remembers Alicia Britt-Jolie? Such a great, great communicator and writer, brilliant writer. Um, and this is called 40 Days of Decrease. And it's a great book. In fact, my wife has read it several times and she keeps telling me, you've got to read it, you've got to read it, I've got to read it, I have got to read this book. So I'm going to give this book, come on, Giancarlos, where are you? Come and give this book to uh, someone, maybe the, the people up the back in the, in the aisle, and then, um, I don't know if the, this is an awesome book, this, the story, and um, I've been reading the Bible for over 40 years, and most years have read it from cover to cover, sometimes more than once, sometimes twice. Back in the earlier days, I did, I think, maybe three times a year on a couple of occasions. But this is a great book. It's the story of the Bible. It leaves out all those... Who loves Leviticus? It leaves out all those rules and regulations. By the way, I should not get off on track, but last week I was talking about the pattern that God gives us for building. And also there's a pattern for everything, for growing. And I spoke to uh, someone at Armstrong Gardens about my 
Maya lemon tree and why it wasn't fruiting. And he told me, he said, well, you shouldn't eat the fruit from it for the first three years. And he said, and because when you do, you are, all the energy is going into the fruit rather than going into the plant. I said, that's amazing, because there's a passage in the Bible about that, where you ought not to eat the fruit from your trees for the first three years. So anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you today. But this is a great book. Uh, it's the Bible. It actually is from the New International Version. Giancarlo, do you want to give this to, do you, to Megan's family, have you read this, this, you haven't got this version? I promise you, you are going to love it. And anyway, there's a whole lot of them out there. They make great Christmas gifts as well. So um, make sure you have a look. And uh, leaders are readers. Leaders are readers. Okay. Well, this is our penultimate weekend in our church. Our second last weekend. And next weekend, next Sunday, is our last service here in the church. I'm going to speak about beginnings and endings. We are at the end of a seven-year period in the church. Seven is the number of completion, and eight is the number of new beginnings. And so we have a new beginning, and uh, I want to share what I hope will be an encouraging word for each and every one of us. We all have to navigate beginnings and endings, or endings and beginnings. And uh, so it's our last Sunday, so I want to encourage you, do everything you can to invite the people in your world, but especially those who've been a part of our journey over the years, and some maybe who are watching online. I'm speaking directly to you. If you could come and join us next weekend, we would love that. Uh, we would love to be able to meet with you. Some, for, for, for multiple reasons, may not be able to, uh, but we'd love for you to be here with us. It's our last Sunday. We're going to have a bit of a party. Like, if you got here early today, it, it, we, had, we had donuts. We had pastries uh, with strawberry and custard in. Uh, and then Jeannie French brought her raspberry crumble, is it? It's plum. And figs. Plum and figs. Wow. Well, it was amazing. <laughs> it was delicious. And it was, it's out there. So we're going to have food next week. And uh, it's going to be a good time of celebrating together. So we'd love you to be here. It's a, it's a, it's a significant day. It's a... It's a um, uh, yes, it's one of those days. It's a significant day. All right, I'm speaking about living stones, and the title of the message uh, is Not Welcome Home. The title of the message is Living Stones in the Hands of the Master Builder. We are all living stones in the hands of the Master Builder, and the text that I have been speaking from is uh, Peter's letter where he writes, You, as you come to him... The living stone. The New Living Translation writes the living cornerstone. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You and I are like living stones 
being built into a spiritual house. I've been talking about how Peter had a revelation about living stones, about how Jesus was the rock, and how Jesus had said to him, you are Peter, a stone, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Last week I shared a message about the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the living cornerstone. And our theme in this whole series has been this. God is a builder. God is a builder. And we are living stones in his hands. And God wants to engage us not only in being those living stones in his house, but in participating with him in his divine building program. And the overarching question that we've asked throughout this series is, for me as a living stone, I need to ask myself a question. Am I being conformed or shaped by the elements of this world or am I, am I being transformed in the hands of the master builder? We are all subject to the influences of the culture and the world in which we live. But as a living stone, I must make a conscious decision. I am going to live my life being transformed in the hands of the master builder rather than being conformed or shaped by the prevailing opinions and culture of the world in which I live. The second question that we looked at is, am I building randomly or intentionally? It's so easy in life to lose our intentionality in right across the whole spectrum of our lives. And so personally, as I've been studying this, I've been making an effort to be more intentional in many of the things that are going to help me to be that living stone, transformed, changed, metamorphosized into the image of Christ so that the inner reality of who I am in Christ can be manifested in and through my life. And like all of us, I struggle with that at times, my humanity. But I want to be intentional in all that I do. And then the third question, which we're focusing on uh, as we conclude this week, Am I building according to God's pattern or my own? Or for those of you who are visitors, am I building according to God's pattern or my own? Last week, we talked about the cornerstone. Uh, two of the great people in our church, great family in our church, the Itzen family, they are architects. And in fact, much of what you see around you here is a result of their design when we moved in here. Uh, they worked very closely with us in, the, in, in, in all that, that you see in the building here. And uh, I asked William last week, I said to him, William, give me, give me five points on the importance of a cornerstone. And we looked at those. And if you want to get this uh, message, it's, on, uh, it's on, our, uh, on a podcast, on our website. But the five things that we looked at was, number one, the cornerstone is the first stone. Secondly, it's the foundation stone. Thirdly, it's the reference stone. Everything refers back to the cornerstone. Fourthly, it is the signature stone. And then fifthly, it is the 
honored stone. It is the stone that is most honored of all the stones in any building. It was the stone from which every other measurement was made. If the, the alignment and orientation was derived from the cornerstone, and if that was out of line or off-center, the entire building would be off-center. So for you and I, if we want to be fitted into that spiritual house that God is building, then our alignment must be to Christ. Our alignment must be to his word. Our alignment must be to the pattern which we find in God's word, the blueprint that he has for our lives. So the next thing that we, as we, as we move forward, this scripture came to mind. Isaiah, 750 years before the birth of Christ, wrote these words. He said, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. What an awesome passage of scripture, a prophetic word 750 years before the birth of Christ about Jesus who would be the cornerstone. That if he is the firm, tested stone, and he is the one who is safe to build on. If I want to build my life safe, if I want to build my life secure, then Jesus must be my cornerstone. And if it is, I will not be easily shaken. We've been through some difficult years, but when Christ is our cornerstone, we will not be shaken. And then Jesus himself, referring to who he was when he was rejected by the religious leaders of his day, said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in, his, in our eyes. Jesus, of course, was referring to himself as the cornerstone. In a modern building, according to William, the cornerstone is what is known as the datum, D-A-T-U-M. Maybe my pronunciation is incorrect, is it in, in, in English? The language they speak in heaven, it's the datum. The dictionary definition of a datum is that it is a point. And I want, to, I want to emphasize this now as a point. The cornerstone is a point. But it is a point, line, or surface used as a reference in surveying, mapping, or geology. It is the central point from which every other part of the building gets its measurement. Just think about that for the moment. We're moving from the cornerstone to the center. We sang that great song, Jesus is the center. And so Paul had a revelation, Peter rather, had a revelation about the cornerstone. Peter referred to the datum as a cornerstone, but the apostle Paul refers to the datum as our center. And so we have these two perspectives of the building. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 3, remember we read this the other week, 
Paul talks about how no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he talks about how he as a master builder had laid the foundation upon which others would build. So Paul has this revelation as well of building, but whereas Peter's emphasis comes out of his revelation that he received on Mount Hermon when he stood there and Peter, Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And he answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are Peter, a stone, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Peter had this image burning in his mind. Paul had the idea or the concept of the center at the forefront of his thinking. So Peter declared, whatever is the cornerstone of our life will determine the shape of our life. Paul declared, whatever is at the center of our life will determine the orbit of our life. And I want to refer to a passage in the book of Ephesians from the message version of the Bible where Paul highlights this in a really, in a very powerful way. Ephesians 1 verses 17 to 23 in the message version of the Bible, this is what Paul said to the Ephesian church. And in a moment we'll look at the context of this because Paul was challenging what was at the center of their lives in Ephesus. Ephesians 1.17, I ask, ask the God of our master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear, so that you can see exactly what it is he is calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. Paul had a revelation about Christ as the center, at the center of the universe, ruling everything, and how Christ had placed the church at the very center of his purpose and plan, and that the world in which we live was not not central, but in fact peripheral. If I am a living stone, in the hands of the master builder, Christ must be both my cornerstone and my center. Peter is saying, whatever is my cornerstone will determine the shape and strength of my life. Paul is saying, whatever is at the center of my life will determine the orbit of my life. 
During the Middle Ages, particularly in the 16th century, the burning question at the time, both in the church and in the world of science, was did the sun revolve around the world or did the world revolve around the sun? And there were two models that were proposed regarding the structure of the universe. The geocentric model claimed that the earth was the center of the cosmos, while the heliocentric model suggested that the sun was the center of the universe. The word geocentric means earth-centered, and the word heliocentric means sun-centered. And the worldview of people at that time was that the, peop- that the, 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 the worldview of the people at that time in the Middle Ages was a geocentric worldview, that the earth was at the center of the universe and everything revolved around them. Have you ever met someone like that who is geocentric in their worldview? They are at the center of their universe and everything revolves around them. They believed that the earth was the focus of, the, of God's attention, which is true. Therefore, they viewed the universe that way. If we are the focus of God's attention, therefore, the earth must be at the center of God's natural creation. The earth was the center of the universe. The sun revolved around the earth. The universe revolved around them. But Copernicus came along and he challenged that view and Galileo confirmed that view through his pioneering of the telescope and his observations of Venus and Jupiter. And he saw through his telescope for the first time the phases of Venus which like the moon waxed and waned which could only occur if Venus circled the sun, not the earth. And so they challenged the prevailing worldview at the time. And it literally turned the world upside down. They were criticized, they were persecuted. Uh, Galileo was imprisoned and forced to recant by the church, the established church, his worldview because they believed that it was heretical. That the, the sun was the center of the universe rather than the world. And since that time, of course, we have learned that their view was the truth. But he challenged the prevailing worldview. He turned it upside down. And Paul was that kind of a person who challenged the worldview of the people of of his day. He challenged the prevailing culture. And when we look at the story of Paul's time in Ephesus we see that that was literally what took place. He changed the center of their universe. And so Jesus became the center of their universe rather than Diana, who was the God of the Ephesians. Time doesn't allow us to go into it, but if you read the story of how Paul went to Ephesus, there was a riot because Paul was preaching Jesus. And the people of Ephesus, whose whole world revolved around Diana, uh, the goddess Diana and the temple of Diana, which was one of the ancient wonders of the world, and their trade 
all of the trade that was uh, a byproduct of their, their worship of Diana, Paul challenged it. There was a riot. said that the whole city was in uproar. I love the story because they dragged two of Paul's colleagues into uh, the theater that seated 25,000 people at the time. They dragged them in, and it says that some of the people who joined the riot didn't even know what the riot was about, but they just wanted to riot. It reminds me of... Anyway. When Paul tried to reframe their world, there was a riot. Sometimes, when we try to reframe our world, people don't like it. Sometimes when we challenge the prevailing worldview, people don't like it. In Thessalonica, they said, Paul is this man who turned the world upside down. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. He was, he was inverting their worldview. He was turning their worldview inside out. Uh, because Paul knew that whatever is at the center determines everything that radiates and flows out of that center into our lives. Our worldview will revolve around whatever is at the center. And the interesting thing is that Paul not only challenged their worldview, he not only turned that city upside down, but it was in Ephesus that Paul established the largest church of the first century where Paul taught for several years and it said that the whole of Asia Minor heard the gospel that Paul preached in Ephesus. It became a center for Christian learning. It became a center for the, for the spreading of the gospel. And so what had been one of the wonders of the ancient world because of the goddess Diana, now became the center of Christian activity in the first century. And he did that because he, there was a transformation of the center to Christ. And so when Paul wrote that letter to the Ephesians that is so beautifully translated in the message transliteration of that passage, he he highlights the center. He highlights the importance of what is at the center of our lives. Christ is at the center of the universe. He has placed the church at the center of the universe. And it is in the church and through the church that God lives, acts, breathes, and moves. And so as a living stone in this spiritual house... That energizes me. And at the conclusion of this message, I'm going to talk about five things, give you five things that I believe that emanate and flow out of that revelation that Paul had of Christ at the center. When I was a uh, younger man, in my teenage years, my stepmother had a pottery shed in our garden. And she loved to throw pots. If you're not a potter, throwing pots doesn't mean you pick up pots and throw them like the Greeks do. Uh, it means you, you put the clay that you have worked and processed, you put it on the wheel, 
and you begin to work that piece of clay into and shape it in the hands of the potter into a vessel that can be used. And I tried my hand at pottery. And one of the things that I understood and I learned very quickly, if you have ever done any kind of pottery, is that it is, in, it is essential. It's not just important. It is essential that the piece of clay is put in the very center of the wheel. Because if the clay is not in the center of the wheel, it's just going to wobble on that wheel and it's impossible to be able to mold it or shape it. It can only be molded. It can only be shaped when it is at the very center of the wheel. And there are other aspects of it. There's water that's involved and there's many great illustrations or examples that God told Jeremiah to go and see. And this is what God said to Jeremiah. God said, this is, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's shed or house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Maybe it wasn't centered. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. That's a very poignant thought. I want to be shaped in the potter's hands so he doesn't turn to someone else to shape. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that, that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I have planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will consider the good I had intended to do for it. So Jeremiah is highlighting this point. If I am to be shaped in the hands of the master builder, then I need to be, at the, I need to be centered in Christ. And in this case before Christ, upon God and his word, his divine plan, his purpose, must be at the very center of my life. Paul's focus in his letter is on determining what is central or what's peripheral. And I want us to think about this. What is central to my life and what is peripheral to my life? The word central means of the greatest importance, principal or essential. The most important, predominant, dominant, key, crucial, vital, essential, basic, fundamental, core, prime, premier, paramount, major, overriding thing. And the outcome of whatever is central determines what's going to flow out of my life. For all of us, the most important thing is to, un is to establish what is central to our lives and what is peripheral. And our problem in, our, in life is sometimes it is hard because 
it's not only sometimes do we have to make choices and decisions that are uncomfortable, that require us to change, but also in the busyness of life and in the confusion of life, it's easy for things that maybe used to be central to drift and to become more peripheral. What we need to establish is what is central, what is peripheral, and the only way that I can do that is to keep steadfast looking at Christ, the cornerstone, and to steadfastly establish that he is at the very center of it all and that his church is his plan, not my plan, his plan, because it's through, in and through his church that he is acting, he is moving, and he is establishing his purpose. Christ is at the center of all things, and the church is at the center of the world. I believe that what has happened over the last two years, not only in this nation but around the world, is that the enemy has been working hard. He has been working overtime to make what should be central peripheral and to make what should be peripheral central. That's it. That's the bottom line. And so there has been a shift, a cultural shift. There's been a shift that has taken place where many people for whom Christ was central, there has been a shift from the centrality of Christ to a more peripheral position in their life. There has been regarding the church, and I'm not saying this in any way, in any kind of a judgment, from any kind of judgmental position, there has been a shift of the centrality of the church to a more peripheral position. And that is the strategy of the enemy. I remember when I became a Christian, I, for those of you that don't know me, I grew up in England. I was born in Hong Kong with an English father and a Spanish mother, made in Hong Kong with English and Spanish parts. I, I, Spanish was my first language. I spoke it before English because my mother spoke good English, my father spoke good Spanish, and they decided to speak English, uh, Spanish at home. My sister was born in West Africa, and then we moved to Morocco, and then to Spain, and then to Lebanon, and when I was five years old, I arrived in England, not speaking one word of English. So if you wonder why I'm confused sometimes, now you understand. <laughs> but I grew up in England, and I went to a boarding school, and I, I was... I had to go to chapel every Sunday when I went to what's considered high school, which is public school in England, which is in actual fact private school. We had to go to, to chapel every day. And uh, so I was familiar with the Bible. I liked the Bible, and I, I was always fascinated by the Bible, and I thought Jesus was awesome. And at the age of 16, 17, I started to rebel. I became a hippie, and at the age of 18, I traveled around the world for three years. And when I arrived in Australia as a 21-year-old, I met some Christians and I had an encounter with, with uh, some people who shared, a friend who shared the gospel with me. Talked to me about Jesus and 
And I thought Jesus was, was awesome. I didn't believe that he was the only way. I had yet to have that revelation. I thought Jesus was awesome. I mean, I even had long hair like Jesus and a beard like Jesus. I wore sandals and I looked somewhat like Jesus. I had people tell me, you look like Jesus. Fortunately, I didn't believe them that I was Jesus, which many people in my day thought they were. But I had, I thought the church was irrelevant. Jesus was all right. Jesus was awesome, but the church was irrelevant. The idea of me going to church, the idea of me becoming a pastor was about as far from my framework of thinking as the east is from the west. There is no way I would have laughed you to scorn if you had told me as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old that one day I would be a pastor talking to you about the things that I'm talking to you about. To me, the church was irrelevant. It was peripheral. But when I had a revelation of Jesus, and this is the important thing, I didn't have a revelation about the church first. I had a revelation about Jesus I met Jesus, and he turned my world upside down. He turned my worldview upside down. And Jesus, from being peripheral, became central to my life. And now, the church that I thought was so irrelevant became central to my life. I loved the church. I loved the community of faith. I loved the people in the church. There are, there are some interesting people in the church, but I love the church. I love the people. God built us and created us for community and connection. And I had a revelation about the centrality of the church. You see, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to, he always turns things upside down, inside out, which is what God does when he puts everything the right way up. And he makes what's peripheral central. When Christ is at the center, everything changes. We are living stones being built into a spiritual house. And the only way that I can become a living stone built into a spiritual house is if Christ is my cornerstone and Christ is at the center of my life. I had this in the front console of our car driving to church this morning and my daughter London, who's just about to turn 15, pulled this out and said, what's this? And she pulled it out and she looked at it and she said, is this a phone? <laughs> no. It's not a phone. Does it take photographs? No. Can, I, can it connect to the internet? No. Well, what is it? It's a Palm Pilot. And in the day, it was the state-of-the-art handheld computer or device before Blackberries, Blueberries, iPhone, Androids. This was it. And I explained to her, I said that this 
had, has on it a stylus and she took it out. She said, how cool is that? I said, yes, you would take the stylus out, you turn it on and you would tap it and then you would begin to write. And the, it took time for the device to get used to your handwriting. It took a long time for the device to get used to my handwriting. But it took a while and you could write notes in it and it would translate them into text, print and you could store information, and, and it was a very useful device in its day. But I said, but every now and again, you had to recalibrate it. Because you would be writing, and what you were writing wouldn't register correctly, or what you were writing might appear in text form as something different, or you might put your stylus on the screen, and the image might appear in a different part of the screen. So every now and again, you had to recalibrate. And in order to recalibrate, you had to tap the four, four corners of the screen. And on the four corners of the screen, a little arrow, a, a little cross, crosshair would appear. And when the crosshair appeared, you'd tap on it. And then the other corner, you'd tap on it. And you'd tap on it, and then there would be a crosshair that would appear in the center of the screen. And when you tapped on the crosshair that was on the center of the screen, it was recalibrated. And I said, today, I'm going to be talking about how all of us need to regularly recalibrate our lives. And we need to take our spiritual stylus and put it at the four corners of our lives so that it covers every area and every aspect of our life and then tap the center so that Christ is established at the center of every area of our lives. And when we recalibrate, we begin to function and we begin to be able to fulfill what God has called us to do. Every one of us needs to recalibrate our lives from time to time. And when we do, I'm giving you these in fast fire order if you're taking notes write them down when I recalibrate with Christ at the center several things happen I have a revelation that as a living I'm a living stone in the hands of the master builder and this is the first thing Number one, I have a revelation that we are central to his purpose. We, that's you, that's me. We are central, we're not peripheral. Your friends will try to tell you you're peripheral. The world will try to tell you you're peripheral. The world will try to tell you you're insignificant. The church is insignificant. These things are what are central. No, you and I are central to God's purpose because this is what Paul says, at the center of it all, Christ rules the church. The church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. Number one, we are central to God's purpose. Number two, when I recalibrate with Christ at the center of my life, I receive God's divine energy. Anyone need energy? Only two of us, okay. 
If we need energy, he is at the very center of that. Here we see, it says here, uh, he prays that we might know the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for us, his followers, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him, endless energy, boundless strength. He energizes. The more centered I am in Christ, the more energized I become. Thirdly, the trajectory of my life stays true. All this energy issues from Christ who God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name or power exempt from his rule. Have you ever wondered how many satellites there are up in the sky? I googled it today and whether it's correct or not, they say that there are between four and a half thousand, one number was, and the other was six and a half thousand satellites up in the sky that are orbiting the earth at this very moment. And the trajectory of those satellites is dependent upon the speed at which they travel and the height at which they travel. The height and the speed need to be accurate because if they're too slow, the gravity of the earth will pull them to the ground and if they're going too fast, they will spin out of orbit. I thought to myself, what an amazing illustration. Because I can think of many people over my years who've kind of spun out of orbit. Because the speed or the height or the thing that they measured as the central piece of their life shifted and changed. And so they could no longer stay in the orbit that God had designed and designs for each and every one of us. Fourthly, I know that Christ has the final word in my life and in our world. I know without a shadow of a doubt, He is the one who has the final word. And then fifthly, we are building what is of eternal value with an eternal reward. Number one, we are central to God's purpose. Number two, we receive God's divine energy. Number three, the trajectory of our life stays true. Number four, I know that Christ, I have a revelation, I have an assurance. He has the final word. And fifthly, I know that we are building what is of eternal value with eternal reward. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Would you stand with me? I'd love to pray for you this morning. Father God, as we come to you this morning, you are the living cornerstone. And we come to you as living stones who are being built into a spiritual house. Maybe there are some who are yet to have that revelation, the same revelation that Peter had on the slopes of Mount Hermon, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
and that no man can come into relationship, no man or woman can come into relationship with their heavenly Father except through you. And I pray that today each one of us would take our place. That for each one of us, whatever is maybe or has been central in the past and maybe drifted to a more peripheral position or things that need to change in our lives so that we can be centered in you. We can be centered on you. We can look to you, Lord, as our framework of reference, as our datum, as our cornerstone. And that whatever is going on around about us in our world, we know, Lord, that you are the center of the universe. That the church is at the very center of your purpose and plan. That we are not irrelevant. We are not peripheral. We are at the very center of your divine plan and purpose. Let each one of us know that. And may that bring a sense of assurance in our hearts and divine energy within each and every one of us for this next season. Thank you, Lord, for your power at work in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today or maybe you're watching online and you've never made a conscious decision to accept Christ as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that by simply praying a prayer that is accepting what Christ has done for us. We don't need to earn our forgiveness. We don't need to earn our salvation. It's a free gift that Jesus made possible through his death when he took our sins upon himself and when he rose from the dead and he gave us the promise and the gift of eternal life. If you've never prayed that or maybe you want to make a recommitment of your life to Christ, I'd love to pray for you this morning. Would you close your eyes, whether you're watching online or whether you're here in person today, let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, I come to you today in the name of Jesus. I ask you to forgive me. I receive you, Jesus, as my Savior and my Lord. And I believe that when you died for me, my sins are forgiven. And from this day on, I determine that I want to follow you. I want to be a living stone built into your spiritual house at the very center of your divine plan. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Would you give Jesus a big hand of praise and thank God for his grace?